This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. All right, amen, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, everybody. Good morning, New Life. It is so good to be back with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and I was traveling with uh, Pastor Ron, our founding pastor, our good friend Gordon, who leads our global outreach team, and another friend over to India for the past nine days. We got back on Thursday, and I want to give you greetings from the churches in India. They were so encouraged to hear that you were praying for us and praying for them, and God is doing some great work with our ministry partners over there in India. Uh, They started with just one church about 40 years ago. And God has blessed it. Now they have over 40 churches in three different states in southern India. Uh, They've got uh, a training program for the pastors, an orphanage, and a school that has over 2,000 students in it. It is a great work. And we went over specifically to talk about how to transition to the next generation of leadership. As their founding leader is now in his mid-70s, he's asking some questions about expanding the ministry in the next 40 years. And uh, so we went over, and God moved powerfully in that time. It was such a great experience. And I want to thank you for praying for us as we've been there. But boy, it's good. It's good to be back with you today. Uh, So when you walked in, I want to get us all on the same page and get us ready for what God wants to speak to us today. When you walked in, you should have received this program. And inside, you're going to want to grab two things. The first is the Start Here card. And just put your name on it. And if you're a guest with us, would you put your email address on it? And Uh, I won't ask you to do anything with this right now, but if I've earned your trust over the next 35, 40 minutes, um, I'm going to ask you to drop this into a basket when it's passed a little bit later. And all this card is, it's a connection card. It helps us stay connected to you, helps you stay connected to us and the things that we're doing in our church, in our city, and around the world in places like Mexico and India. And uh, we just want to partner with you. So when the time comes that you're ready to take steps with God, we want to be the church to help you do that. And this card just helps us stay connected to you so we can do that. So go ahead and get that. The other thing you're going to want are your teaching notes. They've got the Bible verses we're looking at today. Uh, They've got some fill in the blanks. They've got a little bit of space to write down some of your thoughts on the topic. And then they've got some questions at the bottom. And these are our life group discussion questions. So we've launched our fall life groups. These are small group gatherings of, you know, 8 to 15 people. And we look at the message from Sunday and we get into what God says in the Bible about it. And we ask some questions and we start dialoguing so we can go deeper in what we're experiencing with God. And your questions are on there. And we do that so that you can um, keep engaging with this message over the week. And so uh, that those teacher's pet inside each of us that wants to get the answer right, you know the answer before you get to life group. So you've already done your work and you feel really good about yourself because you've already got your questions answered. So if you used to sit in the front of the classroom, you're really going to want those teacher's notes. If you're in the back of the classroom, maybe not so much, but you can make a paper airplane out of it and it flies very well. So lots of options for everybody. Uh, Hey, this got me thinking. Uh, Out there, you might have seen donuts. Uh, We've got our Mexico team is doing a house build in June. They're doing a donut fundraiser, and I am all for donuts because in my humble but correct opinion, um, the Holy Spirit combined with sugar is just a great one-two punch. So uh, if you don't have a donut yet and you're feeling a little bit tired, you're like, God, I want you to speak to me. Go get a donut. Come on in for the next 30 minutes. You'll feel like God's speaking to you like crazy. Then go home and take a nap. Um, 
But I would encourage you, grab a donut on your way out because the Mexico team is going to be a great trip. We're going to be building a house, working at an orphanage. And not only does it shape a community that we serve in Mexico, but it actually shapes us in the process. So it's just such a fun thing to be part of. Well, I was gone for nine days, and it seems like things went really well around here. I want to share with you three highlights while I was gone. The first is this. I heard that last Sunday was amazing in worship and the message. Am I right? Was it pretty darn good last week? Yeah. So fun. Um, I got home, and I had been looking at a 1973 MGB, which is this old kind of European sports car, and my wife surprised me. She bought it for me while I was gone. So it was sitting in the front yard. Yeah, I was clapping about that. And my Chicago Bears won their first game of the season. So three big things happened, which just got me thinking, I should just leave the country for long periods of time. Uh, so I'm letting you know that I'm not going to be here for about a year. I'm going back to India. They could really use me. You guys are doing just fine. And my thought is, when I get back in a year, uh, the church will be thousands of people strong. Uh, Maria will have bought a new house, and the Bears will have won the Super Bowl. That's my thought. So I'm going to see you guys in 2017. You're probably wondering how a kid from Southern California became a Bears fan. That's a great question, and I'd like to answer that for you. When Maria and I were first married... About eight years ago, we went to Chicago, and her brother has season tickets 10 rows up at Soldier Field behind the end zone, and he invited us to come to a game. It was seven degrees that day, and if you've been to Chicago, you know the wind blows through, and it was windy and snowy, and I was a little nervous being a warm-weather kid, so I said, do you have any warm clothes? And he put me in my sister-in-law's big, like, grown-up onesie snowsuit. If you've lived in the Midwest, you know these things. They zip from here all the way up to here. But it was about this long. I looked like the kid from Christmas Story walking in <laughs> to the game. And the Bears beat the Saints. It was a good game. The snow's blowing. The, the wind's coming. And I was hooked. We were singing the Bears fight song. It was just, it was epic. And ever since then, I've been a Bears fan. And it's been a lesson in humility for the last seven years. <laughs> but a strange phenomenon happened when I was walking out of Soldier Field that day that you can only truly appreciate if you're a Bears fan or a Packers fan. Now, you need to know that at this time, Brett Favre was the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And we were playing the Saints, and we had just beat them. And you would assume that we would be cheering about that and kind of, you know, rubbing it into the Saints fans. But that's not what happened. As we were walking out of Soldier Field, a chant started in the distance, quiet. And then it got louder and louder. And when I could finally pick it up, here's what they were chanting. Brett Favre sucks. Brett Favre sucks. Brett Favre sucks. Can, I, can the church do it? Brett, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Here, here's the thing, though. This mob mentality grew to a fever pitch as everyone's cheering Brett Favre sucks. Now, I'm a Bears fan and, by default, cannot be a Packers fan. It's just against the law for Bears fans to be Packers fans. But I have to be honest because I'm a Christian and I try to speak the truth. Brett Favre does not suck. I know I can get an amen from at least a few Packers fans. And he, he doesn't suck, which got me thinking. There's something unique that happens when groups of people get together. That stuff just kind of rubs off. You know, it starts with one person and then grows more and more and more, not just in sporting events, but in all areas of life. That's why we can go to different areas of the country 
And we can see that in certain areas, people vote the same way. They dress the same way. In certain areas, uh, they parent the same way. You go to certain areas and they have certain beliefs about gun laws and other areas have other beliefs about gun laws. It's because that in these cultures, in these communities, stuff just kind of rubs off as we rub shoulders with each other. And even more than that, you can travel around the world and you can see that while cultures around the world are very different from each other, within each culture there are certain similarities. For example, in southern India, uh, a number of the men, especially the older generation, they wear a traditional Indian wrap that's called a dhoti. It's this light, kind of a sheet fabric-y wrap that you wrap around. It is the most amazing piece of clothing I've ever worn, by the way. I love it because in India, it was like 95 degrees and 95% humidity. And all of my teammates were wearing pants like suckers. But I was wearing a dothi, and it was amazing. You ladies who complain about skirts, I don't know. It was pretty nice for me. But in India, I could be this big, tall, white dude wearing a dothi, and while I got some looks, it was somewhat normal because of the culture that I was in. And yet, if I showed up today wearing a dothi, you would have some questions. Unless you knew me, and then you'd say, yeah, there's Kevin being weird. Why is that? Why is that? Because in certain areas, stuff just, just rubs off. It's true positively, and it's true negatively. Positively, you can come into a worship service and be around a bunch of people who are passionate about engaging with God and worshiping God, and that just kind of rubs off on us. When I was a teenager, we started going to a church, and that church was a very expressive church. Almost everybody raised their hands. There was a lot of clapping, and uh, so I really became a very expressive person in worship. But then a few, about a month and a half ago, I was visiting a friend's church, and their church, I realized, was not that expressive. So wor worship's going, it's great. It's very much like new life. And I, I, I have my hands in the air, and I'm worshiping. I'm kind of going back and forth. And I opened my eyes, and I realized in this church of about, I don't know, 500, 600 people, I'm the only one with my hands in the air. But I was okay with that. So I just keep on worshiping God, and all of a sudden, this gal next to me, it's so funny, she goes from hands crossed, she kind of lifts her hands up like this, and then someone behind me kind of went up. It was like this funny little progression as we were like raising the roof for Jesus. I don't know what was <laughs> happening. Just going all the way to touchdown. I don't know where we were going. But that's just the culture of that particular church community. You know, at work, stuff rubs off. If you work in uh, a team culture that is thriving for excellence, don't you normally rise to that level of excellence? But if you work in a culture where there's uh, a level of mediocrity, we tend to drop to the lowest common denominator. Isn't it true that stuff just kind of rubs off? We look at 12-step meetings, where women and men are courageously admitting their shortcomings and striving to become healthier people. And you get in that meeting, and you want to get free from addiction why? Because stuff rubs off. When you get around people who exercise three to five times a week and eat healthy, you wish that would rub off. It doesn't. <laughs> but that's the only place where it doesn't. <laughs> but as a general rule, stuff rubs off. And we're in this series right now that we're calling Weird. And it's, it's a series on practical life wisdom. Uh, it's from the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament of the Bible, which was written primarily by a king named Solomon, who many believe was the wisest man to ever live. And Solomon wrote this book primarily to his son, trying to teach his son how to get the most out of his one and only life. 
And the foundation of this book is that it, um, all of life starts with a belief in God. So everything Solomon says comes from this bedrock that there is a God and that God is like this perfect, powerful, totally present, loving Heavenly Father who has great plans for his children and who loves us enough and respects us enough that he teaches us how to get the most out of life. And when Solomon wrote this book thousands of years ago, this was practical, common-sense wisdom. But as we've experienced for the past, I don't know, seven or eight weeks, that this common-sense wisdom of Solomon is very uncommon today. You could say that to live out this kind of wisdom in our lives would make us look different, would make us look weird, but we said from the very beginning, we don't mind looking weird because normal isn't working all that well anyway. And if it's true that when it comes to relationships, stuff rubs off, wouldn't it make sense that Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, who's trying to teach us how to get the most out of life, would have something to say about the relationships that we form? In fact, he does in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. He says this, walk with the wise and become wise. But on the other side of that, a companion of fools will suffer harm. About a year and a half ago, we did a whole series on friendships that we called Friending. And you can find it on the website at newlifepetaluma.org if you want to look up that whole series. It was great. But here's what we said in that series. We said this, based on this verse, walk with the wise and become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. We said, if you show me your friends, I can show you your future. If you show me the people that you hang out with at work, after hours, that you hang out with on the weekends, if you show me the ones you wrap around you, I can show you with startling accuracy what your future will look like. Why? Because of the simple principle that stuff just rubs off, and the people we surround ourselves with shape us in very powerful ways. That's, that's why wise parents sit down with our kids, and we tell our kids, choose your friends carefully. Because we look at our kids, and we know that the people they surround themselves with from an early age, and the people they grow up with, will shape their lives. But this odd phenomenon happens as we become adults, and we think that somehow there's an age limit on this wisdom. But Solomon would say there is no age limit. If it's good for your children to choose their friends and their boyfriend and their girlfriend very carefully, then maybe it's even more important for us to choose our friends carefully. In fact, Solomon says it like this in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26. The righteous, I want you to circle or underline that word righteous because we're going to come back to it. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. That word righteous literally means to live rightly, to live rightly before God in the way that God would design for us to live, and then to live rightly in this world, getting the most out of life. He says if you want to live rightly, if you want to have the right kind of life, choose your friends very carefully if you choose the wrong ones, they will lead you astray. I listened to last week's podcast, and I thought that Angela did a brilliant job talking about iron sharpening iron and having some friends that can really speak into our lives. And she talked about circles. Remember, she said we have the Facebook friend circle, and then we have circles that go in from there to get closer and closer and closer. And the question today is, how do I choose who I'm going to invite into my closest circle of friends. Because the people we invite into that closest circle, next to God, those people will shape our lives 
more powerfully than any other factor in the world. And here's one of our two big ideas for the, today. It's this. It's nearly impossible to live the right kind of life if we have the wrong friends. Solomon would say that's common sense wisdom. And you and I know that's true for our kids because we think our kids are impressionable. And so we sit down with them and we say, choose the right friends. But what if it's even more true for us? Because our kids, even if they choose the wrong friends, they've still got mom and dad's boundaries around them. So we can still protect our kids, even if they choose the wrong friends to lead them down a path that's not ideal. But as adults, we don't have anyone setting boundaries around us. So our friends will shape our boundaries. So as much as it's important for our kids to choose wisely, it's even more important that as adults, we choose our friends carefully. That's why Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, when he was writing to this ancient city called Corinth, um, he wrote some words about friendship. And you have to understand Corinth. Corinth was, it was like the Vegas of its day. It was this major trade route. So it had people from all over the world coming to Corinth. And Corinth was just full of anything goes. Anything you want to do, any desire you have, you could fulfill it in Corinth. There was a temple with, I believe it was a thousand priestesses, and the way you went and worshiped at this temple was you would have sex with a priestess. That was the way you had a worship service. That's one way to grow church attendance. That's, you know, it was, we'll cut that out of the podcast for later. It was so bad that if you were kind of at your moral lowest, there was this saying around the ancient world that you were acting like a Corinthian. You were Corinthianizing. I mean, that's how bad it was. What happened in Corinth stays in Corinth. I mean, that's the motto of Corinth. And in this city where anything goes, there was this small little church, this group of Jesus followers, and Paul wrote them a letter to encourage them called 1 Corinthians. And he said to them, be careful about who you wrap yourself around because the world around you wants to lead you down a path that will not be all that helpful. Here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He says, do not be misled. Bad company will corrupt good character. Anytime Paul writes, do not be misled, we should ask ourselves, why would he say that? Why would he, why would he make that note? Don't be misled. Well, it's probably because we mislead ourselves in this area. And we assume that it doesn't matter who we surround ourselves with. But Paul says, don't mislead yourself. Bad company will corrupt good character. I want to talk about two ways that we tend to mislead ourselves when it comes to our closest relationships. The first is this. We rationalize away destructive friendships. Well, we're in classes together. We're in sorority together. We've been friends since high school. As I've been talking, some of us know that every time we get around this person, and you have a picture in your head, every time I get around this person, it's like I'm a different person. And I get home, and that's not who I want to be. It's like, that, it's like the teenage girl who's dating the jerk, and we sit her down and say, hey, this guy is bad news. And she's like, no, no, he's just misunderstood. You know? <laughs> he's got a good heart, but he's had a tough life. He's going to change. I'm going I'm to change him. Our love will conquer all. And you look at this girl and you say, you're deceiving yourself. Apparently my voice hasn't come all the way back yet. You're rationalizing a destructive relationship. Friend, can I say to you, if you've ever come home and your spouse has said to you, 
every time you're with them, it's like you're a different person. And you start to have an argument about it, you're deceiving yourself. Your spouse is trying to mirror back something to you. But that's not the person who you want to be. Instead of pushing back, you should use that tool that I talked about a couple weeks ago. You should say, help me understand. Help me understand what you mean by that. Because I don't want to deceive myself. And the second thing is this, and this is where I think a lot of Jesus followers, where we get stuck and we get confused. We think that it's unloving to invite certain people into deeper levels of friendships than others. Didn't Jesus say we were supposed to love everybody? So how do I do this? Well, let's look at Jesus. Because, by the way, if you've never, if you've never explored Christianity, start with Jesus. Pick up his biographies in the New Testament of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell you the story of Jesus, who is the most loving person you will ever meet. He loved everybody. And I believe that as you read through his life, you're going to find out that he wasn't just the most loving person in the world, but he was actually more than that. He was God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. And Jesus as you read through, you're going to see he loved everybody. Jesus was actually criticized because he was so loving. He loved pro-government IRS agents who were cheating their own people out of money, embezzling money from them. He loved anti-government rioters who were trying to stir up dissension and get their people in trouble. He loved prostitutes. He loved adulterers. He loved rich he loved poor. He loved everybody in between. Jesus was the most loving person. And that's why people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. They were drawn to him. But do you ever wonder how Jesus was able to love everybody the way he did? It's because he knew what Angela talked about when it comes to circles of friendship. He loved everyone equally, but he didn't treat everyone equally. There are certain points when Jesus had thousands of people following him. You could say they were his Facebook friends. When it went out on, on ancient Twitter that Jesus was going to be by the lake and he might bring some fish, like thousands of people showed up. And he taught them and he trained them and he loved every single one of them. But then inside of that, Jesus had a group of about 70 people who he trained a little more and taught a little more. Inside of that group of 70, Jesus had 12. They were called the disciples, his closest followers. And here's what Jesus would do. He would teach the thousands, teach the 70, but then he would call his 12 away and say, come over here. Remember what I said to that group over there? This is what I meant by that. And he would go even deeper with the 12. And then inside of the 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John. They were his BFFs. Can I, can I say that about Jesus? They were his besties. And he would take the, th I know, that's super lame. <laughs> Check. He would take the three and say, guys, come here. And with those three guys, he would be his most vulnerable. He said, guys, I am scared about what's going to happen to me. I'm pained to the point of death. He shared intimate details of his life, temptations that he had, fears about the future. He shared with these guys at a level that most of us only dream about. 
So he loved everybody, but he treated people differently. And because he had that core group of people, he was able to love fully because he could recharge with a group who loved God, who was following God, who could speak into his life, who could pray for him, who could care for him. It enabled him to go out and to love the thousands of people that he served. And I was thinking about it. If, if Jesus needed it, and he was God in the flesh, wouldn't it make sense that we need two or three or four people in our lives that we can be totally transparent with, that we can share everything with, a core group of friends who have direct access to us, who love God, who are following God, who are pushing us towards God's best, So here's the second kind of big idea that we have for the morning. When our core group of friends are committed to taking that journey with God, here's what it does. It makes our spiritual roots go deeper. Those people will spur us on towards God. That whole thing about living rightly, having a righteous life, those people will help us go deeper with God so that we can love more fully. I had this experience in India I shared with you guys before I left, please pray for us. Here's kind of what we're doing. But then they had a smaller group of people, and I shared with them specifics because I'm not a whole lot different than you. Leaving to go halfway around the world, leaving my kids who are seven and, and four, leaving them at home and leaving my wife, it makes me nervous. I could be super spiritual and say, I, I trust God, it'll be fine. But the truth is, what if something happens to them? I'm a, I'm a half a world away. So I gathered a small group of people together, and I said, guys, I'm nervous to leave. I'm scared, actually. Would you pray with me? Would you partner with me? I shared with them that there was a very real chance that with some of the cultural nuances, if we didn't nail a few of those early meetings, like really understand what was happening cross-culturally, that the whole week could go sideways. So I need you guys to pray specifically about this thing on this day and this thing on this day and this thing on this day. And because I had that core group who was praying for me, who was encouraging me, who was praying every day, it enabled my love to go further into India. Do you see how that works? A core group to help us go deeper so that we can love more fully. Do you have those friends? Two or three or four that you can be totally yourself with? Let me ask you this question. This is where it gets a little sticky. Are there a couple people in that core group right now who are the wrong people to have in that group? Maybe they're kind of gossipy, and every time you're with them, you find yourself talking about other people or thinking about other people or saying things you shouldn't say, or maybe they're just super negative. Maybe it's just they're an Eeyore person all the time, and every time, every time you leave, it's like, oh, it's like this negativity all over me. It's rubbed off on me. Maybe they're a person from your past. You know, you, you had this past pattern in life. Maybe it was substance abuse, and, and they were your drinking buddy, or they were the friend you went out and party with. But you're trying to live rightly before God now. And every time you're with that person, you're just tempted to go back into that life that you know you don't want. And maybe you've been standing strong, but it's pulling you in a direction you don't want to go. Remember, stuff rubs off. And the people we invite into those closest friendships will shape us, next to God, shape us more than any other factor in our lives. Can I tell you, if you have someone in that inner circle who encourages you to do things that are opposed to the things of God, that's the wrong person to have in that circle. 
I'm not saying unfriend them on Facebook. I'm not saying you can't hang out with them from time to time, but that core group of people who you are totally transparent with has to be on a similar spiritual journey to you if you want to experience the life God created you for. So right now you might be asking, well, how do I find these friendships? That's a great question. Thanks for asking. Let me tell you how to find these friendships. The first is you got to look in the right spot. If you want a drinking buddy, hit the bar. If you want to hook up, hit the club. If you want to find a good friend, hit the church. That's all I can tell you. Better than hitting the church, hit up a life group. We just started these life groups. There are these small group gatherings of Jesus followers who are on a similar journey to you. That we can get together. And no, it's like a low-cost uh, friendship dating pool. You get in there, you just get to know each other. And it might take two or three or four life groups before you find the group where you, you really connect with the people. But I'm telling you, that's okay. Just find the group that's right for you. Get into the group. Keep trying. You're not going to hurt anybody's feelings if you try this group for a few weeks and move. We'll help you find the right group for you. But if you're looking for the people to surround yourself with, a life group is a great place to start. And when you get in there, you want to ask yourself this question, do I like the results that they're getting? When I look at their marriage, yeah, it's not perfect, but you know what? I like, I like the results they're getting. They're working together to partner with God and to walk through life together. They're working things out. Do I like the results they're getting in their parenting? You like what you see in their kids. Hey, two out of three are doing pretty good. That's not bad. I'll take those odds. Do you like the results that they're getting? Do you like their ethics, the way they weigh out decisions? Do you like the way they engage with their faith? That they, they, they actually seem like they have a an ongoing relationship with God outside of church on Sunday. They're not oversaved. Uh, I heard this comedian talk about oversaved people. It was so funny. Uh, he said, how do you know if you're oversaved? Well, if you only sleep with a sheet because Jesus is your comforter, you're oversaved. Like, that's so funny. If you only eat pizza that's been delivered, you're oversaved. Come on, that's funny. That's funny. I added, I added this one. If you only drink milk that's been pasteurized, you're oversaved. All me. <laughs> so we're not talking about oversaved like crazy, but we're talking about like a genuine relationship with God. So get to the right spot. <laughs> That's so good. Ask the right questions. And finally, this is where it gets a little bit sticky. Ask them out. And I know this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. But if we want to have an actual close friendship, we have to go beyond sitting together in church on Sunday and getting at life group once a week. We have to actually ask them out. One of my best friends came from my most awkward ask out. I was in college. Uh, I had just gotten out of a relationship, and my twin brother, who is one of my other best friends, he had just left to move to Southern California, so I found myself with no girlfriend and no best friend. And I saw this guy, I knew he was a Christian guy, lacrosse player, very cool, really loved the Lord, and actually my ex-girlfriend had encouraged me, you should be friends with him. I'm pretty sure she had a crush on him, but I didn't ask. <laughs> and so one night, uh, I had just gotten dumped, and I did what every college guy does when I got dumped, um, I went to sing karaoke. So I was out singing karaoke, and, and I sang an in-sync song, and I nailed it, by the way. Nailed it. It was awesome. And, and he was there, and afterwards he left, and I watched him leave, and I actually followed him like a puppy dog following for a meal. I followed him all the way back to his dorm, and I said to him, uh, hey, Jeff. He said, yeah. I said, 
my ex-girlfriend, she says we should be friends. Can I, like, hang out with you? I was like, I guess so, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Weirdo. <laughs> I guess so. And we went in and we played ping pong that night, and we've been best friends ever since. And he has shaped my life in deep ways. But we never would have done it had, we not, had I not asked him out. So you got to do the ask out. You want to go for coffee? Hey, you want to take our families to the beach? I Do it in a way that you can get out if you have to, but ask them out. Be vulnerable. Friendships grow where transparency exists. Be vulnerable. Because Solomon would say, the stuff rubs off. And those two or three or four friends next to God will shape your life more profoundly than any other influence you have. I want to talk to you as we close our time about my best friend. The Bible talks about Jesus as a friend of sinners. Sinners are people who think things and say things and do things that are destructive, that hurt ourselves, that hurt those closest to us, and that separate us from a perfect and holy God. And we're all sinners because we all fall in that category. And we actually have this sin nature inside of us that compels us to do the very things we don't want to do. And because of that sin inside of us, we've been separated from a holy and loving God. But the Bible tells us that Jesus left heaven and came to earth. And he was criticized because he hung out with sinners like me. But he took that as a badge of honor. He said, I want to be friends of sinners. And then Jesus gave his life on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could move from distant deity to friend. And then we're told that when we commit our lives to God, when we enter into a relationship with him, we actually move past friendship into family, that Jesus becomes like our big brother and that God becomes like our heavenly father. Here's the amazing thing about God. This is why God is unique from all the other gods and goddesses and all the other world religions. I was just in India, and I had a firsthand shot. Again, this was my third time there, to see the Hindu religion, which is the major religion in India. And, and I look at these women and men who are striving to get the attention of their gods and goddesses, but their gods and goddesses, they believe, are very distant, far away. And so they whip themselves into a frenzy, and they give their money, and they give their gold to try to get the attention of their gods and their goddesses. And this is the, com the common denominator of all the major world religions. God is distant. We have to get to God. But Christianity is the exact opposite. That while we were distant from God, God got to us. And Jesus doesn't want to be a distant deity. He wants to be your best friend. He wants to be your older brother. And God wants to be like a perfect, loving, powerful, heavenly father. How do we start that relationship? Well, we, we ask. We ask. So I'm going to pray right now, and if you've never entered into a personal relationship with God, I'm going to give you a chance to ask, to commit your life to God by saying, God, I want to have a relationship with you. Would you come into my life? And we're told that God answers that prayer 100% of the time. And it's the best decision you could ever make. It will shape your life in profound ways. And if you're ready to make that decision, you can repeat the simple prayer after me that we're going to pray right now. So we, let's close our eyes. I want to give you a chance to make that decision. If you're ready to commit your life to God, you can whisper this prayer or just say it in your head. Say, Lord Jesus, 
I believe that you love me and that you gave your life to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me what it looks like to walk through with you every day of my life? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.